with Secret Movie Clubbers. This is Secret Movie Club Podcast 94. Today, we are talking about the amazing documentary, American Movie, about Mark Borshot and his best friend. What's his best friend's name, Daniel? Mike Shank. Yeah. Two Wisconsin filmmakers, and this is a 1999 documentary that painfully, beautifully, inspirationally captures really what it is like to try to go for your movie dream. This movie was guest programmed by Mr. Daniel Ott, whose birthday it is today on the day of recording. During the Kubrickian cosmic oneness of two, 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 which will be upon us in about three hours and 22 minutes. Who is with us today? Hey, it's birthday boy, Daniel. Hey, it's me, Carnaloid Cruz, the people's champion. Hello, America. I'm tired. Very tired. And I'm tired of not talking, so I'm going to talk. Because when I don't talk, I get tired. When I talk, I wake up. I'm Craig, the founder, programmer of Secret Movie Club. It is wonderful to have everybody. By the time that you hear this, Friday night, we are going to be doing the upbeat Lars von Trier movie, Dancer in the Dark, winner of the uh, Palme d'Or. <laughs> this is the Bjork-scored musical where supposedly Lars von Trier consistently, psychologically abused Bjork. So be aware of that. That being said, Bjork wrote some of her best music. It's one of the strangest musicals you'll ever see. Definitely one of the darkest things that Von Trier, and that's saying something for Lars Von Trier, definitely one of the darkest things Lars Von Trier did. Putting all these complexities aside or accepting and embracing them, it is a fascinating film. He shot sometimes with over a hundred cameras. I thought this was one of the like most amazing solves to having a low budget ever. So they would just choreograph the musical numbers and shoot them in one or two takes with a hundred cameras and just cut between them so they could like shoot the movie in 30 days days. The music by Bjork is incredible. The story, wow, we can talk about it another time. Specifically, we'll be talking about it next week because that's what our next episode's about. I am actually a huge Lars von Trier fan, but he is a very complex dude. So as Connor said, we'll get into all that. Tomorrow, though, total change of pace. Trey Parker, Matt Stone, South Park, the musical on 35. Sometimes I'm like, the last greatest movie musical was Purple Rain by Prince. And then I'm like, what am I talking about? South Park. Amazing, And we're doing South Park Bigger Longer Uncut on 35, followed by Trey Parker's very first movie ever, made while he was still going to the University of Colorado Boulder, Cannibal the Musical, with Stan Brackage, amazing avant-garde filmmaker Stan Brackage in the movie, because he was a teacher of Trey Parker and Matt Stone, so check that out. And then Wednesday, we're doing Final Girls on 35mm, build on a double with Sleepaway Camp. We have the writer of Final Girls, Mark Fortin, coming in to talk to us about what it's like to write a great screenplay and then find a way to get that movie made. If you are a filmmaker, please join us. And then Thursday, what, what? It's almost sold out, y'all. Speed Racer. Another topic of an upcoming future podcast. So that tells you where uh, the zeitgeist is. And we're going to have a special guest, Ann Mortensen Agnew, on that. Ann's first time, but Ann's a longtime secret movie clubber. It'll be awesome. So there you go. Yeah, I'm glad we're getting her in here before episode 100. You can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. Check everything out at secretmovieclub.com. American Movie was released on unsuspecting moviegoers in the year 1999 considered by some to be the peak year of modern cinema. It follows the story of a filmmaker, Mark, who wants to make a movie, but in order to fund his movie must complete an unfinished project he shot in 1994 on 16mm film. A movie about family, finance, and spiritual crisis. It's about ambition, obsession, excess, and a man's quest for the American dream. 
Today we're talking about American Movie, which is this amazing documentary about Mark Borshot and his friend Mike Shank in Wisconsin. Mark has a whole plan on how he's going to make his feature film and finance it. And it becomes a metaphor in a lot of ways for anybody who has a dream. But I think specifically and painfully for all of us who've devoted our lives to movie making. And we're also going to talk a little bit about documentaries today because this is a documentary. But of course, like everything, this is not the documentary episode. That's just ridiculous. But we are going to touch a little bit on documentaries. So, Daniel, this was one of your picks for your birthday. Everybody on the Secret Movie Club team who's been with us for more than a year gets a guest programming movie pick. Why was this your pick? I adore this movie. This movie is a movie that has changed with me, my perception of it over the years. I initially thought, when I saw it as a teenager, I thought it was sort of a comedy that was mocking these people. And I thought it was funny at the time, which was, you know, my ignorant. (laughs) It's very funny, but the mocking thing is the thing I've come around on. The more I've watched it growing up, the more I realized that it's essentially like this character study about these people whose passions are all in the right place and their real life struggles are in the way of that achievement. They're real people at the end of the day and the stream they so desperately want is not something that you can just obtain. It is something that has to be worked at and it is a compromise between this passion, this love of art, and also the struggles of real life and the circumstances they have to deal with. And so its focus is more on the lives of these people and what making this film means to them, both in terms of Mark, who is the filmmaker, but also in the people he surrounded himself with and the way that they feed into each other, both and the detriment that that brings and also like the beautiful things it brings together. And I think it just gets richer and richer the more you revisit it. And it's one of those things that it's, it's especially insightful if you're a filmmaker or an artist, but it works on any level because it's just about passion in general, I feel like. To Daniel's credit too, the moment we announced American Movie, our movie posts about it across our social media have some of our widest readership ever. I think one of the American Movie posts had like 800 to 1,000 likes which is easily, for us, high, high end. So clearly, Daniel, the movie resonates with tons of people. It's, it's a movie that I, I feel like it's one of those, and like Connor and I talked about this, but like the Pantheon of movies you get excited to show people, to experience with them. This is one of mine, and it has a, a bigger, a wider audience than I expected. So I'm very excited. Never seen it in a theater. Very excited to have at this point watched it with a group of fine folks. Yeah, and the prince in the booth, 35 too. Yeah, I'd never seen this before. I watched it for the first time yesterday. I agree with what Daniel's saying, though. I was reading that apparently, I guess people thought it was mocking. And I can see from the point of view that the movie is very... um, It made me very sad a lot (laughs) about Mark and what was going on. I can kind of get it, but I feel like I also find him... I don't know if inspirational is quite the right word. I do find him inspirational. He also, I think Mark, the main subject of the movie, has a lot of hubris, clearly. And he reminds me of a lot of people I know, including myself. But thankfully, he reminded me more of other people, which I think was a good thing in my mind, the way I viewed it, because he reminded me of them in like negative ways, in the sense of Mark was often trying to, I think, philosophically, maybe trying to have his cake and eat it too, in terms of wanting to be this hyper successful person, but also this hyper artistic person. And I don't think he ever quite in the movie has a moment. He has like one or two moments where he kind of gets at this, but he never really quite squares these ideas because they aren't necessarily always the same thing and I think he has them linked in a way that's probably not good for him 
and what he wants to do. But uh, I, yeah, I thought it was great. It did also remind me of me in like high school making movies with my buddies <laughs> a lot. And especially some of those like secondary people, the uncles, hilarious. Mike, you said this a couple of weeks ago when talking about it, Craig, that Mike Shank is like the platonic ideal of a best friend. No, totally. <laughs> Everyone just disappears in and out of his life, in and out of this production, and Mike Shank is always there. It is beautiful. Mike is a beautiful, soft-spoken man. It's a hoot, but it's also, it's kind of a sad hoot. It's a hoot that made me cry a couple times. Adwin, what do you think? <sighs> what do I think? I think he's a god Ashby, that's what I think. <laughs> You just get cockier. As we progress, Edwin, you lean heavier and heavier into your self-assuredness in a way that's mind-blowing to me. Great, this is how I watch films. Okay, man. Thank you. Anyway, American Movie, one of the greatest documentaries of all time. It's the movie that made me want to become a filmmaker. It pushed that limit for me. Yes. Yes, Craig! Is that what you want to freaking hear, man? Swine! The audience can't see this, but my jaw's on the floor. This is the movie that made you want to make movies? It kind of pushed that limit to being a filmmaker. The movie for me was Jaws, but this pushed it more, a lot, because how hard it is, how difficult it is to finance and, and to make a film. What these guys did was kind of inspirational, but a little sad, like Connor said. But I'm really happy I saw it, and I've been begging you the program for God knows how long until someone's birthday came about and programmed it so i have no choice but to go watch it sorry i didn't i don't think i fully understood your comment but now i think it's incredibly insightful american movie really does show you the pain and what it takes if you're really going to try to make a feature film whether you're successful or not fun fact uh, mark says man 127 times in the movie yeah. i think a lot about like the time some movies made me laugh harder than i've ever laughed and i mike shanks scream in the video recordings is one of the funniest things I have ever seen and never fails to, if you're having a bad day, watch that YouTube clip. It is the most committed bit of dedicate. It's unbelievable. There was a long time where I was confused before having seen this movie to whether it was a documentary or a mockumentary, uh, which if the audience doesn't know is mockumentary is a fake documentary like The Office. And there are parts in this that are almost unbelievable as documentary filmmaking where it will, with like precision comedic timing, cut from one character saying something in a location to like an interview with them and them saying something like specifically I think about when Mike comes in for I think Thanksgiving and he's really happy and he's just like I'm just happy to be here and Mark's like uh, what are you so happy for and then it cuts immediately to Mike in the basement and he's like I'm happy because I just won $50 from a scratch off but I don't want anyone to know because they'll ask to borrow it <laughs> That almost seems scripted, but it's not, which is incredible. So American Movie was made by filmmaker Chris Smith. What everyone's talking about is I think one of the reasons it resonates is it has a very weird tension. And the tension is that it's wildly entertaining, specifically because Mark, the filmmaker, there's a level of comedic tragedy to his life. And as an audience member, you have this feeling that unfortunately, maybe Mark is never going to achieve the dreams that he says he wants to achieve at the beginning. And you go on this ride and you see what he does. But I think the miracle of the movie and maybe the miracle of good documentary filmmaking 
is that over time, I found myself being more and more reticent to judge Mark because I saw myself more and more in Mark. I mean, I'm 44 and I can for sure tell you, I tried to raise money. I had features fall through. I had an investor in Colorado. Like I'll maybe one day I'll tell all these stories of my incompetence and my failure. And if I were to laugh at Mark, I would have to laugh at myself. I think I mentioned this when we talked about uncut gems about how Sandler plays that role. So warmly that instead of being mad at him you're just like oh howie when he does stuff and i think that's kind of similar to mark in this where you're like oh mark and the movie as daniel was saying earlier and i I actually and you were saying connor i has this beautiful relationship as well between mark and his elderly like misanthropic uncle who he's constantly trying to get to give him money for the feature and the misanthropic uncle knows that like this is all a bad idea and he's off and very like pessimistic about Mark's chances. But over time, you see this bond and Mark even puts him in the movie with like one of the great lines of the movie that Mark writes for it, which is like, it's all right. It's OK. Don't worry. Jesus loves you. And, and you know, there's all these things we're not even hitting on. You just have to see the movie. But like Mark insists on calling his short Coven and he refuses to acknowledge that that's not the way you pronounce Coven, which is extra weird now because of COVID. And he just Mark will refuse. And I think that's very it's funny. I'm reading this autobiography right now by Mike Medavoy, uh, who's this incredible studio exec who was with United Artists, then he was with Orion, then he ran TriStar, then he had Phoenix Pictures. He's had a hand in everything from like Apocalypse Now and Raging Bull to Zodiac. And he was saying something that he can't stand dealing with filmmakers is when a filmmaker thinks they know everything and they don't want to hear anything he has to say. He says at this point, being 81, he has no time for that. And I think I had a lot of those characteristics when I was younger. And I think that was insecurity, frankly. And I think that when you see Mark also, it's a cautionary tale because it doesn't seem like people can really tell Mark a lot about how to do what he's doing. And Mark is like, this is what I'm going to do. And he's not listening to anyone. And it's very painful to see that behavior because I think that behavior is shared by a lot of director, filmmaker type personalities. I just want to thank Pat Oswalt for signing my DVD of American Movie. That's it. Yeah, famous involved with the film Pat Oswalt. I also wanted to give a shout out to his mom, who I think is also a great little character in this. She's Norwegian, I think. Oh, is she the one who's filming that scene? (laughs) Yeah, she just has the thickest Norwegian accent. You can kind of hear in her accent how those types of like Scandinavia, like European Minnesota Fargo accents come about became those accents. You can hear like the transition in her accent, which is kind of incredible. And a weird thing I noticed, there's a little graffito in one of the rooms where Mark is editing that actually says like long live Godard, which is the podcast that people listening heard last week. We're recording next because time is a construct. I don't know how many times I say this because I'm almost always talk about my Irish and my Russian background. But my grandmother is actually half Norwegian. And my great grandmother was 100% Norwegian and lived in Minnesota. And we would go visit her in Crookston. And <laughs> I would eat Lukafisk and Lassa. Nice. Oh, yeah. And one of the things like when I watch Fargo, I do have to laugh was 
Paul Bunyan is huge up in Minnesota and there are tornadoes all the time. And we always played cards. And my great grandmother, my great Gigi, once there was this tornado warning and we were all from California and we ran to the basement and she was like, the tornado is not coming. And we were like, but the warning. And she's like, I've lived here for 40 years. I know when a tornado is coming and it's not. So get back to the table and let's finish cards because I'm winning. (laughs) And I was just like, that was a very Minnesota moment for me. We've never talked about docs. I think in, you know, we did the Tiger King episode and we've probably, you know, touched on it in our pop cultures, but American movie really is one of the great docs of the last 20 years. You could probably put that on a short list with a few others, like The Act of Killing, The Imposter, Man on Wire, among many, many others. I'm sure you guys have your own. What are your thoughts on the doc? Because we almost always talk about narrative filmmaking, but documentary filmmaking is the whole other sibling of filmmaking. And we really haven't even scratched that service. I'll take the most basic approach. It's the documentaries that everybody likes and that everyone's the least surprised I would mention, which is true crime stuff. And I feel like we'll talk about it eventually, but The Thin Blue Line is an in- incredible film. And there's so much else. I was going to actually specifically, it's a show, but you know, I've talked previously before how nebulous I think the difference between show and movie is. But The Staircase, which I believe is available on Netflix, which is an incredible documentary series, probably a little biased, but part of that bias is because they have uh, what seems like unprecedented, almost like I don't understand why the subjects are giving this kind of like leeway to film them as much as possible. If people don't know, The Staircase is about this woman dies, is allegedly found by her husband at the bottom of a staircase dead, And the husband is essentially the main subject of the documentary series. And the police begin to think that he killed her. He insists it was an accident. It's fascinating, partially just because it gets so into the nitty gritty of how cases work in this way and the nebulousness of it. There's a weird thing in true crime, a lot, especially more modern true crime. I remember Serial kind of touches on this, which is the idea of like, On one hand, this person almost certainly did it. On the other hand, our system is very flawed for finding them guilty. You mean that first serial with Adnan Syed? That's amazing. Everyone should listen to that. There's this weird, like, nebulous area that I don't necessarily know how to square that I kind of love because it's a real head-scratcher, is how do you square someone who you're almost 100% positive did it, but on the other hand, you know, because of the way our system works, probably shouldn't be found guilty, probably should be found innocent, because while there's a lot of, like, stuff that makes it feel like they almost certainly did it, you know, you can't rely on like, well, it's the thing that makes the most sense isn't like a good reason to send someone to jail forever. I'd never thought of serial from that point of view. And if people don't know this, this is an amazing radio series. And I don't know how many episodes, but I think it's like 10 ish episodes. It examines this real life murder case. And Adnan Syed, who is a Muslim man who's now in prison, was found guilty of killing his Asian girlfriend. But I think what Connor's intimating is that a lot of it was circumstantial evidence. And I have the exact same reaction, which is I'm 99.9% sure he's guilty. The most damning bit of evidence is that he calls her, calls her, calls her, calls her, calls her. And the moment she died, he stops calling her. But he claims he didn't know she was dead for days. And so that to me was so damning. And I can't get into the whole thing because it's like a whole tangent. But it's interesting, (laughs) Connor, what you're saying, because I do believe in law. 
And I believe in American law and American law says that you have to be proved guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And I had never actually wrestled with that, maybe because of my visceral emotions about his guilt. That's a weird area of reality. That's difficult to parse. But a great place to be in creative work. I mean, that's the whole reason you go into creative work is to be in that area. And not a lot of people talk about it. I will also recommend the other seasons of Serial I thought were very good as well. Season two is about Bo Bergdahl, the army deserter. And season three is about, I forget which city, but it's specifically, it's a bunch of stories about the way the law system works in this one big city. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing use of the form and the medium. Documentaries are in this incredible space right now because so much of what I watch, a lot of audiences take in from streaming services are these documentary series, which sometimes frustrates me on a surface level because a lot of these mini series that say like Netflix puts out are like these six part, six hour long things that are really 90 minutes of actual content that they just stretch <laughs> to the very edge of possibility. But there's so much cool. I think it's great. There's something so intriguing about them. True crime is obviously huge. My favorite documentary filmmaker from the last few years is a woman named Kristen Johnson. And she had these back-to-back movies, one called Camera Person in 2016, and then one from 2020 called Dick Johnson is Dead. Camera Person is basically a memoir that she's created from footage she shot over her career. But it starts to focus in on these personal things, specifically about her mother and her struggles with, I think it's Alzheimer's. Uh, something that's affecting her memory. And it's just less interviews with her and more just scenes captured in casual settings that she pieces together for this very hard to watch and beautiful kind of journey as she sort of deals with this coming. And from that, she made Dick Johnson is Dead, which is about her father, who's 86 years old and is doing fine, but he's retiring. He was a doctor and she's preparing herself for his eventual death. And so they band together and they create all these fictionalized ways he could die that are funny and sort of this way where she's trying to see if through art and with her father, if she can sort of prepare herself for the inevitable, both for him and for her. And it's really beautiful and very touching. And I think it's, in the documentary spectrum, a really interesting look. And Dick Johnson is a beautiful man. Oh, man. If you want to just watch someone and be in love with them, he's just the most lovely, lovely man. And clearly, everyone in the documentary talks to about him feels the same. And then I also pulled For All Mankind, the uh, Al Reinert doc from 1989 about the NASA Apollo missions. That's one of those beautiful things where there's no talking heads. It is just footage strung together that tells the story. No one's telling you the story. You're just seeing it happen and you get to take that in, which is a format that I've really grown to love. And finally, from 2013, Mistaken for Strangers, which is a documentary about The National, which is my favorite band. But the movie is not really about The National. It's directed by The National's frontman's brother. And it basically becomes about them and this interesting thing because the brother, his name's Tom, wants to be a documentary filmmaker and hasn't found success Whereas his brother is in this hugely successful band. And a lot of their tension is from this idea that they've both pursued an art. One has achieved it both critically successfully and financially successfully. And there's sort of this energy between them as they try to contend with that success between two people. One succeeding, one maybe not in the same capacity. It's really beautiful and it becomes kind of this thing about family and art. And it's great. Documentaries are dope. I could just cheat and say Michael Moore movies, but I won't do that. You know, I love the documentary. My general passion for uh, documentaries toward political and no, movies about making movies. 
some of my favorites are The War Room, The Thin Blue Line, which I think is like probably one of the greatest documentaries about a crime that has ever been made. War Room being about the Clinton campaign in 92, and Thin Blue Line being the famous Earl Morris documentary about a crime where supposedly the guy who was incarcerated probably was innocent. That still blows my mind every time I watch it. I think my personal favorite of documentary is, is a movie called Burden of Dreams, the making uh, Fitzcarraldo, which I think is probably like the peak of grading how to to, you know, make a movie in the Amazon and how stressful and how a nightmare it could be and how Klaus Kinsey wants to hurt Warner Herzog and how the natives wanted to kill Klaus Kinsey because he was crazy. I worship Bird in the Dream because I think it's probably better than Hearts of Darkness because it's more dangerous and more, it's like really in there, like very deep in the jungle. A lot of documentaries like that, you know? Great filmmaking. The thing in Burden of Dreams that I always remember is that Fitzcarraldo, the Werner Herzog movie, is based on a real event. The primary sequence of the movie is that this guy wants to bring opera to the Amazon and he takes what's essentially like a huge riverboat and pulls it completely over this Amazonian mountain. And so it becomes this metaphor for movie making. But in real life, they just broke the ship apart and they pulled it up bit by bit. But Herzog was like, that's not inspiring. So he did something that didn't happen in real life. He literally made it harder than <laughs> the people in real life, like the people in real life figured out how to do it. And Herzog was like, I want to figure out how to get the whole ship up the mountain, which everyone was like, you can't. And so the movie almost becomes a crazy metaphor. Um, there's too much to say about documentaries. I have too many feelings about them. It's like a bottomless pool. I love doing documentaries because I think when you do documentaries, it makes your narrative filmmaking better. I think it's like an alternating current. I think one actually informs the other and you can take narrative techniques and people do all the time, narrative techniques into documentary and documentary techniques into narrative. And I think you see that most famously probably by uh, Martin Scorsese, who always makes sure to direct a narrative and to direct one or two docs. And then he's always taking his doc techniques and folding them into his narrative and then taking his narrative techniques, folding them into his docs. One I will shout out right now is I'm obsessed with Robert Flaherty's documentary from the 1940s, Louisiana Story, which if people have never seen it, he was hired by like an oil company to uh, make this documentary about the bayou in Louisiana. And it has some of the most beautiful shots I've ever seen that it's just a camera on a boat in the bayou floating at night. And the whole unifying thing of the documentary is this boy who lives in the swamp and he goes on four adventures, including one where he like wrestles a gator. He like gets a gator. Another one where he goes to an oil rig. Another one where you see his family. And for a movie that was financed by an oil company where you could be like, oh, this is a propaganda piece or whatever. Robert Flaherty figured out a way to make this very idiosyncratic, beautiful tone poem about being rural and Southern and American. And I'm obsessed with it. It's got imagery as beautiful as anything in a Tarkovsky movie. And I watch it over and over again. Just like, how does this thing exist? Pop culture, final thoughts. I'm still super behind on movies. Time has not been kind to my movie watching. I did see one thing that absolutely changed my life. The worst person in the world, which got a, I think it's a nomination for best screenplay or adapted screenplay. Did it get international picture nomination as well? It did. I am ignorant and cannot pronounce the filmmaker's name, but it is essentially about a, I think it's over a span of four years, but it's about a woman sort of moving in and out of different relationships and figuring out who she is as she approaches 30, which is when I graduated college, I got Francis Ha, which is about being out of college and being nameless. And now I've hit, I'm in my 30s, and now I have The Worst Person in the World, which is about 
trying to understand who you are at 30 and what the future holds in your career and your love life. And it is insanity, but it sort of takes the foundations of a rom-com and twists them to every end of the spectrum. It is one of the most beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. It's been a long time since I've sat in a theater and I went alone to see it and just was so overtaken with what I was being presented. It's insane. And I feel like it will be something talked about a ton beyond award season. I think it's going to be kind of a standout thing. But the fact that we got this and Drive My Car in the same year is, uh, movies are alive and well. I went to the new bath. <laughs> what a shocker. <laughs> Keep going. I saw an Italian movie by this guy named Fellainu. Don't even, homie. <laughs> don't even. I'm not going to bite. You saw La Dolce Vita, Fellini, 35 millimeter. Don't F with me. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think I'm going to watch it again. I think that's like a one-time movie for me. <laughs> I, I was so bored. I wanted to fall asleep so bad. It hurt. Couldn't understand what was happening. I'd like to know what the plot is. All I know is about people, people, people. Talking, talking, talking. Visually stunning, visually stunning. And uh, that's it. Saturday night, went to my first midnight, saw Death Wish 2. Greatest thing I ever saw. Death Wish 2. Better than La Dolce Vita. Better than La Dolce Vita. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, most definitely. You know what, to be fair, if I haven't seen either of those movies, I imagine, or I might have seen La Dolce Vita. I'd probably agree with that one, to be fair. Thank you. Uh, That's true, many people do. No, I was about to say, Edwin's totally entitled to your taste. A lot of people do find Fellini, Fellini. Yeah, here's the thing, La Dolce Vita, three hours three who told him to make it three hours i wanted to leave the theater but no i did because I, I want yeah how long is death wish two an hour and 38 boom as edwin likes to say <laughs> i've been playing the resident evil 2 the board game with my buddy paul steam forged games has been making a couple of board games based off the resident evil video games which is sort of a confusing lineage but it's fun it's like a scenario based thing where you have all these map tiles and you play cooperatively as guys and you go around and fight little zombies and then in between the scenarios your ammo will carry over so you have to be careful about what you're using what items you're picking up etc etc they've made a resident evil 3 board game and now they're finally making a Resident Evil 1 board game, which is also confusing. But I'm guessing it's some sort of rights issue. Or who knows? Maybe they just did that on purpose. But you can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. I got a free tip for you when you all have kids. When you tell them stories, if you just put in an animal that farts, it's winner. Like my son, my daughter, if I'm losing them with the story I'm making up... I come up with like a dog named Tudor who toots in a crocodile's face. And my kids are like, you're the best dad in the world. And then I leave the room and I hear them talking about Tudor the dog. <laughs> and I'm like, no, your audience. I see trailers for kids movies and I think like, well, who is this for? What? Is, how does this work? And then I hear stories like that. And I'm like, you know what? For children. I'm, I'm being ignorant. You got kids? And, you know, if it's a tough crowd, just some fart jokes, guys. Just word to the wise. So that's my pop culture and final thoughts. As always, it's wonderful having you guys tonight. As we said, we would love to have you. We are going to be doing Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark at 8 p.m. here at the Secret Movie Club Theater on 35 millimeter. Bjork and Lars von Trier's. Tomorrow, we got South Park Cannibal the Musical. Next Wednesday, Final Girls with the writer uh, Mark Fortin. And then Sleepaway Camp. Always a pleasure if you like your slashers creepy with huge twists at the end. And then uh, Thursday, Speed Racer 
Racer on 35, Wachowski's woefully underrated speed racer. Thank you, everybody, for being here. As always, write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Check out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. This episode was edited by Connor Lloyd Cruz, our chief creative content officer. And Secret Movie Club Podcast 95 will be about Dancer in the Dark and Lars von Trier. Again, I can't believe it's taken us this long to get to Lars von Trier. He contains multitudes, but we will be talking about that next week. All right, guys. See you all soon. Goodbye, citizens.